Okay, thanks very much, Wynn. It's uh, nice to be amongst work people again. This is a, a nice group to be involved with. Uh, the paper that I'm presenting uh, takes off from the paper that I presented in December, which was uh, on OTC markets. The paper that you've got was written uh, in April, and what I'm going to talk about is uh, developments also since then, of which there have been some fairly important ones. And I think it's nice to come after uh, both Richard and Tim because uh, we're now, well, my approach is to look at the financial crisis in terms of some very detailed uh, constitutive processes, as Tim was. Tim was talking about. Um, essentially, what I'm interested in is how a market's made and with what sorts of consequences. So how are market's made, who is involved in the making of markets, and this is uh, very much about the interaction of public and private actors and uh, different sorts of public actors, different sorts of private actors. Uh, trying to, exp uh, to to achieve their sort of goals, and I mean, I take the core of this to be the financial institutions as trying to sustain models of profitability within different sectors of of markets and engaging to construct markets in such a way as to uh, maximise their potential for profitability and the, the struggle of political and public actors to engage with that process in a way that sort of constrains the systemic uh, crises that emerge. And obviously that's the context of the, the global financial crisis at the moment. Now to do that, and I'll, I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I do take sort of... Uh, two particular approaches. Uh, one is to actually look at the detail of the constitution of these markets. Uh, so I draw there on what's now called social studies of finance uh, and looking in detail at, at what's going on. And then the second is because the social studies of finance often gets drawn into technicalities and lose, seems to lose a sense of interest in in power and uh, inequality, but I want to add that to it. So I want to understand the detail of these markets as actually having specific sorts of distributional consequences. Uh, now, in the 15 minutes that I've got, uh, I'll put my iPhone timer on to make sure that I keep with it, but I'm sure Wynn will indicate to me anyway. Uh, I'm going to talk about where the debate currently is about over-the-counter derivatives. First, the first point is that over-the-counter derivatives were identified very rapidly as a central cause of the global financial crisis. Uh, and the uh, credit default swaps in particular were seen as central to that. And so almost immediately uh, in the G G20 
discussions, there was a sort of short bullet point which said that uh, the OTC derivatives must be brought onto uh, regulated markets. Now, the, the paper is essentially looking at the different forms of markets. So the first form is the uh, regulated exchanges, uh, Chicago Board of Trade, etc. Second is over-the-counter, and I'll explain that briefly for those who are not so familiar with it. And then the third is the option that the G20 see as a crucial solution, which is the creation of central uh, clearing parties. So actually we've got, we've got a debate here about where uh, credit default swaps and other derivatives should actually be exchanged. So this is really interesting to me anyway, <laughs> uh, sort of experimental setting. Where is the bulk of this business going to go and why between these three alternatives, the regulated exchanges and the over-the-counter and the central clearing parties? So let me just very briefly say a, central, uh, a regulated derivatives exchange such as uh, Chicago Mercantile, Chicago Bot and uh, Liffey, regulated exchanges, uh, you have standardized contracts. So there are only certain things that you can buy and sell, in, in particular sort of packages in terms of the size, in terms of the time, in terms of what is being contracted. The price of those uh, deals is revealed in the traditional trading floor by the trader signaling what the price is at this particular point in time on the bank trading floor by the computer-based system. Uh, now, the other, you have to be a member of a trading exchange. Uh, the, the important thing in terms of stability is that the, the contract is between one party and the exchange, and then the other party and the exchange. So there's a sort of uh, uh, a firewall, if you like. If one party fails, it doesn't immediately transmit to a potential failure of the other party. Rather, the exchange holds the, the, the cost. And the exchange can do that because becoming a member of an exchange means you have to obey certain rules, and a key set of those rules concerns the fact that you have to place a certain amount of money on margin or on collateral that uh, the exchange controls and can use if and when uh, there is a, a, a default on one side. So it's a relatively safe system. And we heard nothing about these uh, exchanges, of course, in the financial crisis because they were balanced. They were capable of, of dealing with any uh, failures. On the other hand, we've got over-the-counter markets. Now, this is quite a nice little cartoon that appeared in the, in the FT together with a uh, comment from the FT journalist, John Gapper. Badgett said about the British economy, 
sorry, the British monarchy, we must not let daylight in upon the magic. Up until 2008, none of the participants really wanted people to know what was happening in the top hat. All they wanted people to know was that there was money spilling out. Uh, it was a very profitable business to be in. Over the counter, uh, the term that we use for this sort of business is entirely a bilateral trade between two banks. They set the price. The price is not visible to the outside world. The collateral, in other words, the, the money to back up the trade in case of failure, uh, the size of the collateral was also not determined anywhere. That was something entirely for the people, the two, two parties, essentially. So uh, over the counter was a very secretive process. Uh, lack transparency was inherently unstable in conditions of crisis because of the lack of collateral. And yet it was producing a whole host of money. So the figure of the uh, sort of fireman wanting to come and shine a light inside and see what's happening, that's the, that's the post-crisis uh, sort of sense that we've got to see what's going on in here and we've got to change it. So comparing these two, over-the-counter was a massive business, much larger than regulated exchanges by 2007. It was a concentrated market. It was entirely about the, the, the big banks, essentially, negotiated on a bilateral basis. It was a highly profitable market. Regulated exchanges were highly competitive. Price transparency leads to high competition. Banks, therefore, were very happy and, and wanted this over-the-counter to, to grow substantially. Now, why did over-the-counter outstrip regulated exchanges? Well, there are four issues, and I've got a bit more detail in the paper about it, but uh, I'll just very quickly go through these. The first is that over-the-counter was not regulated at all. Uh, after a period of discussion, it was actually written into legislation that it would not be regulated, US legislation in the late 90s that it would not be regulated. There were private actors, and I spoke about this at the last session, the International Swaps Derivatives Association, called it, abbreviated to ISDA, that sort of brought some stability into the market. But in terms of regulation, uh, government regulation, there was none. The Bank for International Settlements was sort of tracking the size of this market, but it could not track the vulnerability, uh, nor could it take any actions in this market. So this, was, this meant that this market was very open to uh, innovative products, let's call them that in a very neutral sort of way. Uh, secondly, the market generated very high levels of profitability. Again, I'm not going to go into details as to why this was the case, but basically it was to do with uh, the fact that these were bilateral, bilateral trades uh, without transparency. Uh, thirdly, 
the market enabled higher levels of speculation. Uh, so you could speculate on CDOs. So this was the connection uh, between uh, CDOs and credit default swaps. And this is where, for example, uh, why AIG got into such a, a crisis, because it didn't realize until too late that it was being taken for a ride and speculators were speculating speculating using AIG as the insurer of last resort. AIG was, didn't realize that this was going on and was not putting up any collateral. And so when things went down and AIG owed vast sums of money, it had nothing in the bank to, to uh, pay for that. And then finally, the issue of flexibility of these products. It was very, uh, that the, the banks could develop them in all sorts of different ways. So what's the government response to this? As I've said, governments saw the key issue as reducing the amount of risk that was inside the OTC uh, CDS markets. And in order to do that, it, it, I mean, you could say, well, why didn't they just simply ban these markets. So of course you've got the first stage, the first operation of power if you like, is to ensure that the issue of banning OTC trades doesn't really become a, a runner. It was mentioned, and it was mentioned in the US and other places, that maybe the simplest way here is to just say nobody can, uh, nobody can engage in over-the-counter trading on CDS. But of course there was a massive uh, response from the industry, from the banks, to say that uh, the phrasing is used, this would be cut, cutting off your nose to spite your face. That, and they put forward an, uh, an argument that these sorts of contracts needed were extremely economically useful. And so they defended that. They, they defended right from the kickoff the idea that still, these contracts should still be available. But what they also did was to recognize that they'd have to make some sort of compromise. And uh, the central clearing party idea is an effort at a compromise. It is a third way between a regulated exchange and over-the-counter. Why is it a third way? It's a third way because it, it shares with regulated exchanges the idea that you, you can only do the contract if you are a member of a central clearinghouse. And to become a member of a central clearinghouse, you have to follow certain rules. Those rules require much stronger margin requirements. So you have to put up more money. And of course, as I've been thinking about this, I mean, I think the real issue here, and it's something that some colleagues know, Graham Thompson, who he keeps going on about this, the real issue is the control of the money supply, basically. That the banks are continuously trying to find ways that they control money, and governments are trying to constrain them. And so if governments say, as they're saying with Basel III, when it comes through, that up to 8% of your 
assets must be kept as part of capital adequacy rules, then that constrains what the, what the banks, the amount that the banks have free to actually engage in speculative profitable activities. So the, a lot of these issues revolve around the question of margin and collateral. Because for the banks, money that is put in margin and collateral is earning nothing, basically. And so they want that to be as low as possible. And as we know, with the crisis, it was something like some banks down to 2% uh, before the crisis. And governments are sort of trying to push it further up. So, so going on to a central clearing house requires banks giving up some control over part of their money because they have to put it in, in as, a mar as a margin requirement. Now, as I explained with the regulated exchanges, uh, if something goes wrong on a central clearing house, if one of the counterparties can't pay, then the central clearing house has the money from the margin requirements, etc., to deal with that in theory. So the, again, this stops the contamination, as people talk about it, with regard to failure, the way in which it rippled through the system in 2007-8. Instead, you create these fire breaks and it won't move along. It won't uh, turn everything else into ashes. It's not a regulated exchange, though, because there is no price visibility here. So it's not a case of seeing what the price is and then buying it from the person who's offering the highest price. It is a sort of, almost a sort of registration process. You're registering that your deal has occurred in the central clearinghouse. And by registering and having margins, you're sort of conserving and, and reducing the risk associated with it. So that's where the governments wanted to go. But again, the banks and the private sector have struggled continuously, that's my time nearly done, uh, have struggled continuously to stop that occurring. And so they've, they've tried to defend OTC. In other words, they've said, okay, well, some of the products that we've got can go on to the central clearing houses, but there's some that are just too complicated to go on to central clearing houses, because central clearing houses need to be able to assess the risk very clearly, and that's why they need standardized products. The uh, people engaging in the market want or say that there are these customized products that uh, need to be kept in, uh, in existence. And so, if you like, we move from firstly banning all OTC deals, okay, that's out, putting all OTC contracts onto uh, clearing houses, we'll, and the banks saying, okay, we'll go a certain way, but we want to keep the option of some OTC uh, contracts still. And so this is the environment, this is the sort of new bit that I've just started to add, in which the current legislation in the, in the US, Dodd-Frank, and in the EU uh, is occurring. Now again, 
uh, I think that with regard to what's, what's happening here, uh, the Dodd-Frank legislation, which has a number of years before it will actually come in, but it's, it's uh, trying to establish the idea of central clearing houses, but it's got some exclusions. So non-financial entities have been excluded. That was something that they pressed for very early on uh, against the ori original expectations of the regulators. There are still, there's still room for non-standardized products. So we don't really know how that will, how big a, a space will be, will continue to exist outside of the regulated arenas. The EU just last week uh, published a paper about how they were going to uh, ensure that there would be uh, central clearing houses. A lot of the ideas are similar to the uh, US, I would say, similar sorts of exclusions. What, I mean, I think there are two, two interesting aspects here in comparison. Firstly, in the US, the rules on derivatives are set in the broader context of the rules about the potential restructuring of banks and the separation of commercial and uh, investment banks and, and the Volcker rules and all those sorts of things. So, you know, that, there's a, there's a lot uncertain in the US because of, the, of those more structural questions which are not yet resolved. In the EU, there's no mention of this, these sort of structural issues about how banks should actually work. Uh, and in terms of uh, the other thing that I think is interesting here is that the European level is becoming very important. It's the European Securities and Markets Authority that will be able to say whether something can be cleared on a central clearinghouse or not. And so that's quite a significant and problematic shift of power for the UK because the UK is likely to be the place where the central clearinghouse is set up and therefore ultimately if anything were to go wrong the responsibility would be that of the UK Treasury but the responsibility for saying what things can be traded and how they can be traded is actually at the European level. So this some quite interesting relations between different, uh, different political levels here. Uh, I think I'll, I'll finish there by just sort of saying that I think we're, we're, we've got these three different sorts of markets. Uh, we've got private actors trying to ensure that they still have as much flexibility as they can. We also have a long lead time to the actual operation of these rules, some regulatory differences across the EU and the US. So we're still very much in a situation that from identifying OTC markets straight off the bat as one of the crucial things that caused the crisis, here we are two years on, we still haven't got a settled view as to how to manage these markets and insofar as we've got legislation in place we've got a good two to three years in which the banks and the private actors can really shape the details of this to maximize 
to continue their own flexibility. So I guess I fit in with the pessimistic <laughs> <laughs> goals of, uh, uh, of Richard and Tim. So thank you. Thank you.